Welcome to This is an Essential Podcast. I am Aaron Pinkston. John Gilpatrick is not with us tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm My thought, this is just speculation here, that he was too much of a scaredy cat to join us this week, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, Sarah Gore is here. Sarah, how's it going? Um, It is good. Halloween is good. Yeah, I wish not- I had thought of spooky names for us. But all I could come <laughs> up with was uh, John Ghoul Patrick. Well, come on, Sarah. That's you got good. like the you have like the easiest Halloween name ever. Yeah, that's boring. <laughs> I don't do anything good for Pinkston either. So Darren this- Pinkston. Yeah, there you go. Ah! So we are recording this uh, the day after Halloween. Uh, how was your trick-or-treating? Did you get some good treats? Did you play some good tricks? Um, I tried to trick a bunch of people, and it mostly worked pretty good. Um, I actually tricked somebody real good at my Halloween party. Uh, my, my good friend, Dan, shout out to Dan, um, had the misfortune of telling me that he is kind of actually a little bit legitimately scared of ghosts. Hmm. Um, okay. And so I sent him a lot of ghost content because mm-hmm. I'm awful. Um, and if you are on Twitter, you may have heard of the hashtag slash Twitter thread, uh, Dear David, that was going around. Uh, you can look it up. It's been storified, so it's really easy to go through it all. But it is a very, very, very spooky story. Uh, it's not really a story. It's just this guy tweeting about how he is positive his apartment is haunted. And it's mm-hmm. actually like a little bit freaky. Is this one of those, like, creepypasta things, whatever? uh, Kind of. I think it probably will be now, but it literally just exists on Twitter. Um, But uh, the ghost in question is this very demented-looking kid with a banged-in head. And Mm. he draws it. He's like, I drew what I think this ghost looks like. And my friend Laura made a giant papier-mâché head that looks just like it. Uh, and so I was like, oh my God, when Dan gets here, like, I'm going to need to reveal you. Uh, and so he, she like, he like, is like, turns around, sees her. And at first, like, doesn't really, doesn't register until she like had a little, uh, sign around her neck. That was a tweet, uh, that flipped down. It was the dear David thing. He's like, well, okay, no, I don't like it anymore. (laughs) You can leave. (laughs) And it made me really happy. Um, and that was, that was my one good spookum. Um, that's good uh i i have no good spook stories no no good spooky stories that's okay uh plenty of candy i guess i mean you know it's like feels like an excuse to eat candy right yeah i have way too much in my house still yeah yeah um so uh in the last episode Aaron and uh-huh. I uh, <laughs> said we were going to go to a 24-hour horror movie marathon. Yeah. And um, Aaron, would you like to quickly sum up why that didn't happen? <laughs> uh, well, so we uh, this was taking place in Chicago at a old movie palace called the Patio Theater, which has been around forever. Uh, it's not the best maintained theater in Chicago. I, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Mildly. It is. I mean, it's a very big place. It's a great venue for these kinds of shows, which happen every year. Anyway, 
that day was basically torrential rainfall from the beginning of the morning through forecasted the entire day. Uh, and so when we arrived, they weren't letting people into the theater. They weren't exactly telling people why. Um, finally, we found out that uh, basically the part of the roof had caved in in, in the theater. So uh, that was fun. I've to it as a toddler-sized hole in the ceiling. Because that's what it looked like in the photo I saw. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess with the perspective, I couldn't exactly tell. It seemed a little bigger than that to me, but uh, maybe it wasn't. Uh, anyway, they, I guess, have fixed the problem. They've rescheduled, uh, even though it's it's already after uh, official horror movie month. Uh, so that's going to happen in a couple weekends. I'm still going to go because I'm hardcore about these things. Sarah can't. She's skipping out. So yeah. uh uh, but it's, but uh, if if you uh, are happening to go uh, to the uh, the event at the Patio Theater, uh, I don't know. Reach out to me. Let me know. I can hang out with people. I'll yeah. be there by myself. So <laughs> yeah, the the game the game the game plans for that every year is my wife uh, drops me off uh, and then picks me up the next day. <laughs> so uh, she yeah. un- unleashes me out into the wild. Uh, anyway, this is episode 24. Uh, this is our de facto Halloween episode, even though you're listening to this after Halloween has happened. And we're going to talk about Wes Craven's 1984 horror franchise masterpiece. Uh, one of the great 80s horror films, mainstream horror films of all time. A Nightmare on Elm Street. So uh, Sarah and I uh, come to this movie from fairly different uh, backstories, I guess. Uh, Sarah, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Uh, let us know what your history with this film is, and if uh, this is your uh, if you're revisiting this film for the first time in a while, uh, how did it hold up? What did you think about it uh, this time around? Yeah, I saw it like ten ish years ago, eight years ago. I was in college. Um, I don't remember why I watched it because I don't think it was, was it Halloween times? It could have been. Um, it must've been. I don't usually have the motivation to watch anything remotely spooky if it's not Halloween. Um, and I watched it with a friend at uh, their house and had to walk back home alone afterward to my own apartment <laughs> where uh-huh. my roommate was out on Elm street of all places. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I don't like this. <laughs> no, the connection's too real. Um, yeah. I hadn't seen it in forever. I didn't, I mean, it's hard to say I didn't really remember it because so much of that movie is just like part of the pop culture zeitgeist now. So it's kind of sure. like everybody knows Johnny Depp gets eaten by a bed. Like, yeah. it's not really a surprise. Right. Um, but I didn't remember if I thought it was scary. And I think like a general consensus was that even though parts of it, I just don't, I don't like anything in the boiler room. I just, I don't like it. I don't like it in there. I don't see why they have to be in there. Why can't they just be in a field like outside? What's wrong with that? Well, I don't really like the alley scenes either. Um, But that aside, I still don't actually think it's scary because I think Freddy Krueger is a big old goober. (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember thinking that when I first saw it. Like, okay. he's a silly boy. What is he doing? <laughs> Why is he so goofy? I thought he was supposed to be scary. He's like cackling like little witch cackles and like jiggling yeah. in his arms and like I, I, you. I'm taking it you haven't seen many of the sequels. No, I've never. This is the only <laughs> one that I've ever seen. And I, is, is he like the funny one? Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah. It, I mean, it in terms of the tone of the series, it it takes a dip by the by uh, Freddy's Dead, which is uh, the wink wink final film in the series uh, until they made two more and then a reboot. Um, it's basically a comedy at that point. Um, and you can definitely uh, read on the site. I have a, a breakdown of all of the films in the series. So, so check this, check that out. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later in the podcast, but um, yeah. So I come at this and sort of uh, with a different perspective. Um, if you read my opening statement, you uh, have seen all of the personal history that I have uh, with the nightmare on Elm street, but I'll, I'll recap some of it here because I don't know. I guess I don't have that many interesting histories with a lot of films, and this is uh, an exception, so it's fun for me to talk about. Um, so, Nightmare on Elm Street is the basically the first movie I ever remember seeing. Uh, this would have been when I was like three or four years old. Um, I don't like rem- really remember watching the movie, but I remember seeing it. Uh, did, did your parents hate you? No, so uh, <laughs> no, so I, 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 it's a, it's a very strange. Like you know how you don't remember a lot of things while you're when you're a kid, but you have like sometimes very specific, vivid moments that you you remember. So mm-hmm. I remember being at it was some sort of party. I don't know what party it was. Uh, parent friends of my parents. Uh, and I remember like standing in the kitchen and like they had a little TV on the counter on the on the counter in their kitchen. And it w- I don't even know if it was the first Nightmare on Elm Street. It could have been the second one based on the timing, um, because the second one came out, I, I believe off the top of my head, the, the following year. So and this would have been like 1986 or seven. So it was one of the first two. But I, I remember seeing uh, this uh on the TV. I also, and I never really put this together. Um, one of the films that we uh, covered a few weeks ago was Rodney Asher's documentary, The Nightmare, which is about sleep paralysis. And uh, and uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street is, is very obviously uh, has some... Um, uh, it uses sleep paralysis in, in some of its, its subtext, uh, obviously, killers and dreams and uh sarah your your piece that you wrote this week you uh talk about uh freddie's look and that hat and that's a a similar trope to some people talk about yeah so i i actually remember uh having dreams uh, that may have been sleep paralysis when i was a, a toddler this would have been around the time that i would have remembered seeing nightmare on elm street uh and remembering just remembering having I don't even remember them as dreams, but like seeing like a shadow man. So that, that's kind of creepy. And that, that's just kind of <laughs> basically just kind of have that realization over the last few weeks as I've been watching some of these movies. Um, anyway, uh, later on in my life, I, uh, also having a very vivid memory of, uh, being in a hospital, uh, when I was about 10 years old, uh, after getting a surgery, uh, and, I uh, remember being alone in the hospital, 
uh, one night and on uh, WGN when it was uh, big time in Chicago before it basically became the CW everywhere. They had like a late night Friday night movie and it was Nightmare on Elm Street. And I remember watching it then too and just like having a blast with it. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a film that I, I basically grew up on and was a big time contributor in uh, making me a, a fanatic of horror movies as I was a kid and a teenager and uh, maybe a little less so today. Um, but I still love horror movies. So um, I've, I revisit this film uh, periodically. Uh, I would say before I watched it this time for, uh, for covering and for talking about it uh, was probably, I probably uh, hadn't seen it in, in a, five or six years though. So it's always fun to, to catch back up on. And uh, I think it's, I think you're right in saying that Freddie is definitely, you called him a goober, uh, mm-hmm. which, which is a fun, fun word to say. I've been saying um, it a lot lately. <laughs> I'm, um, honestly, I'm using it in context where I'm like, I don't even know if I know what I think it means. Yeah. I'm really applying it to a diverse array of people, but anyway. Well, it either means he's a peanut or he looks like a word, a similar word, a booger, which he kind of does look like a booger uh, if you think about it. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I even though, as I said, that the series gets way, the, the balance of sort of horror and comedy and Freddie's personality throughout the series that there it, it really that uh that horror to comedy balance kind of tips a little bit to the other side but yeah i mean i definitely saw some silly kind of aspects uh to the character um that i think were meant to be more creepy than they were scary like for example there's a there's a moment where uh uh nancy um played by Heather Langenkamp. Uh, one of the first times she meets up with Freddie and then she asks him, who are you? And he like, uh, he takes one of his uh, finger knives and kind of slices open by his rib and like maggots and like green ooze kind of come out and he kind of chuckles about it. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of silly. It's, I mean, it's not exactly scary these days, but I think there are so many like amazing <sighs> visual flashes and some really disturbing uh subtext that's going on throughout the film uh that i think it i don't i i'm not scared by the film and i mean i don't even know if i was really scared by the film when i watched it as a kid but um i mean it's very effective as a horror movie in my opinion yeah it's hard to say where i think i fit on it um, cause when I think about it, I don't know, I get very divorced from, it's just not the sort of thing that I file in my stuff that freaks me out box. Sure. Um, like there's a couple movies that I joke about wanting to watch around Halloween, but I'm like the chances that I will ever actually do this unless somebody like straps me to a chair and makes me is it's like pretty slim. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, it's going to scare the shit out of me. Like I'm going to be yeah. super scared. Like, and it's all like home invasion stuff. Sure. So the strangers and hush. I'm always like, I'm going to watch that. And then it's like, yeah, no, I'm not. It's I mean, just, it's too scary. And I so, totally get that. But like when I was watching nightmare, I also do this thing where I'm like, um, 
Oh no, I'm gonna mess up her name. I wanna say, oh, she used to work for LA Weekly and she did that podcast called The Canon. But anyway. Oh, uh, Amy uh, yes. Nicholson. Amy Nicholson. Nicholson. I keep wanting to say Amy Dickinson, who is an advice columnist. And I was like, I know that that's wrong. Um, (laughs) She talks a lot about trying to approach movies uh, on their own level, which is something that I appreciate where like uh, my husband defines it as like the opposite being you plop yourself in front of a movie and then you like smugly stare it down and say, well, entertain me, do it. Mm -hmm. And that's more of a like, you want the movie to meet you on your level instead of doing any effort on your part to like actually try and experience this, you know, get in the mindset, like set the mood, like actually pay attention, you know, whatever. So when I was doing that, I was, I, I think I chatted or emailed you after that. I was really mad at you. <laughs> Maybe you watched it because it was freaking me out a little bit. <laughs> it's just that it doesn't, the fear doesn't last. Like, right. I think I was scared of the Babadook for like a full week. <laughs> and I was scared of paranormal activity for like, two weeks before that had like 72 sequels. Um, yeah. So there's, there's other stuff that like has been a little more effective, but I, well, I'm not willing I, to say that this isn't it by any stretch of failure. I think part of the interesting, uh, uh, like the concepts behind nightmare on Elm street that I think maybe play into, uh, your kind of assessment there and maybe many other people's assessments too, is that, there's it plays interesting with a line of reality and supernatural mm-hmm. um in that when you say like movies like the strangers you know home invasion movies freak you out like i'm guessing because those movies tend to be very super realistic you could see that kind of happening to yourself yeah, um, right so a nightmare on Elm Street, like everybody has nightmares. And I know that's, that's like one of the first things that Wes Craven has said about why he wanted to make this movie or how he came up with the idea is that like, everybody has nightmares. Everyone can relate to that, but still like nobody really has nightmares like this. I mean, I think the dream sequences are really effective and a lot of them, I, the way it plays with whether uh, you realize uh, the characters are actually sleeping or not uh, can be really interesting and one of the funner aspects of the, of the film. But like Freddie at times is sort of so over the top. And I mean, he's such a stylized character, like the way he looks is very specific. It's very striking and iconic and that's, part of the reason why Freddie became such a cultural icon. Um, but it's, it, it's, you know, it, it plays into sort of a supernatural nature that maybe takes away some of that uh, realism that the film, the film's concept may have. Um, what do you, so besides being a goober, what do you think about, uh, about Freddy Krueger, about maybe we can kind of transition into some of the scenes, specific scenes of the film that uh, you may have liked. Well, I mean, I was super scared of him when I was a kid. I don't like those fingers he's got. I'm not those. <laughs> yes. Um, that is a, it's a, it's a very interesting, I, yeah, um, 
Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting way to build the monster, I think, because uh, I mean it's it's easy to compare Freddy to some of the other uh, horror monsters that were out and very popular at the time, uh, like Jason and Freddy, and a lot of their shtick, especially as those franchises came along, was to kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger, and like so you have Jason, who's just this complete hulking character has this like giant machete that he cuts people in half with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Freddie's style is very different. <laughs> uh, yeah. Obviously like he plays with his victims. Like he tries to like freak them out before he tends to kill him. I mean, he's at times he's almost like a bond villain. Uh, yeah. And, uh, comparison, actually. and that, I mean that fingered glove, like, or that, that knives glove is, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's a really interesting inventive thing that like, like who would, it's like, so like not a natural weapon for, for somebody to use. Um, but I don't know, I guess that kind of plays into, uh, into some of the fun of the film. Yeah. And like wanting to set itself apart, uh, but doing it in a way where it doesn't like, if he were a real man, like running right. around with that, I think actually that would be more ridiculous than him being this like supernatural ghost nightmare and demon. Probably wouldn't it. work that well. Yeah, exactly. Like, or even it would if, be heavy and even like if in the world of the film, it did work great. You'd be like a little put off by like, so he why get a, go to the store and buy a fucking knife? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, right. Um, I think that would be. I think it'd be harder to go along with it. Um, I think the visual that stuck with me the most, and I think the one, because it was one I actually completely forgot about, like I didn't remember this happening the first time I saw it, um, is actually that first kill with, a, I think her name's Tina, mm-hmm. uh, up on the ceiling, like, yeah. I, oh my God, and like the boyfriend's just like screaming and crying in the corner. It's just, mm-hmm. that was like a really fucked up visual. Um, it really kicks things off with a bang and very like kind of removed, almost because removed because Freddie's not even in the scene, but just like watching right. what he's doing to somebody when you can't even see him is just really like, it's sort of like letting you know what you're in for. And it's such like a flawless effect. Um, I mean, I think if you, you think about it, you can kind of tell how they did it. They had, you know, they probably, they had a set that, you know, was upside down or whatever, but, um, yeah, it's so, I mean, it's, it's so like, especially for like such a low budget film, mm-hmm. it's, it's really inventive and it's just pulled off perfectly. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's most, most people who, um, like I, I saw a list, I don't remember what website it was on, but some, some might've been screen crush. Um, I think it was screen crush actually, uh, did like a ranking all of the Freddy kills in the entire series. Uh, and that was number one and deservedly. So, um, I mean, it's an amazing sequence and it is because it is that first kill and it doesn't happen right at the beginning of the movie. It, it comes in about what? 15 maybe yeah. minutes or so into the movie. Now we're yeah. so used to there being an opening kill uh, in horror movies um, that it, it kind of, it kind of really builds and it builds Tina too. And I, and I know I've heard in interviews and I, n- I never really thought about this, but 
um, uh, Wes Craven kind of meant it as somewhat a uh, nod to Psycho uh, in thinking that Tina was obviously the main character in this movie. Ah. Like, we do open with her yeah. uh, and, and a nightmare that she has uh, when we first see Freddy Krueger. Uh, and she's also, you know, the the, the blonde and, and all of that, too. She kind of looks a little bit like Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and then she's the first person killed off and it. So it kind of has that double shock, uh, which is something I never really picked up on, but I, I think is, I think is definitely there. And it's kind of a cool, cool thing. Um, I also love kind of moving on from that. I think my favorite scene in the movie also involves Tina. Um, but it is the scene where, uh, Nancy falls asleep in class. Um, Oh Yeah. First, uh, there's a, and it wouldn't have been considered a cameo at that time, but uh, the teacher is played by Lynn Shea, who has kind of become um, the the lead of the Insidious franchise. Uh, so that's fun. Um, and she was the sister of Robert Shea, who was the head at New Line Cinema, who was like the only person in Hollywood that wanted to make this movie and then made a shit ton of money because of it. Um but then, so yeah, so Nancy falls asleep in class and we see this just amazingly striking image of Tina in a body bag uh, outside the classroom looking at Nancy, kind of calling out to her. And it's just like, I, it's like the way that the, the bag is kind of like tangled up and the way that you can, you, it's just like barely opaque. Like you can you can like not fully clearly see through it. It's like really cloudy, but you can, you can kind of see through it and, and it's, you see like the blood smeared around it. Um, it's really amazing. And then uh, as she goes to follow uh, Tina, like we see her being dragged through the halls of the school um, is uh, that's one of my favorite scenes. And it doesn't involve a, a murder per se or a kill, but um, I think is, is one of the creepier, uh, one of the creepier moments of the film. It's also a good, uh, a good nod to Halloween, um, where we have Jamie Lee Curtis is in the classroom and she thinks she sees something outside the window. And then we of course know that she really did absolutely see something. Um, and I like that the twist here though, is that it's not a sign that something's coming later. It's a sign that something's <laughs> happening right now because right. it doesn't matter that she's in class. He can reach her there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't like that part either. Now that you're reminding me <laughs> of it. I, uh, that might've been when I started being mad that you made me watch this movie. <laughs> I'm guessing no, but did you see the, the new it that came out uh, this year? I told Alex that if he wanted to see it, that I would go see it. <laughs> Especially yeah. cause I was like, well, commitment to Halloween. Um, yeah. But we haven't yet. And okay. We, uh, in a, it'll shock everyone. I don't like clowns. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a scene that takes place in a library. I don't know if it was in the book, but, um, and I don't recall if it was in the original mini series, but there's a, there's a scene with one of the kids in a library that, that reminds me a lot of this, um, this scene in the classroom, uh, where instead of uh, instead of going down into the boiler room, the, the kid kind of goes down into the sort of the stacks of the library and sees horrific things. Um, Speaking of it, uh, yeah. I, everyone has uh, at this point they've read and they've adored and they've lauded my piece this week. Um, <laughs> 
How's that for some fucking terrible fun trivia <laughs> that Pennywise <laughs> is based on a real man and it's not Gacy. <laughs> it's a different man that lured boys into sewers and tried to murder them. What the fuck? Yeah, that's that's fun. Uh, <laughs> Why don't uh, we use that as a transition? Maybe you can talk a little bit more about uh, your piece and some of the context uh, behind Nightmare on Elm Street. We've already mentioned a lot of things that the film referenced and the things that Wes Craven was trying to do, but there's even more. So um, why don't you yeah. talk about that? Um, kind of to, to recap a little bit what I got into. I So the, when I was watching the movie, I just really couldn't stop thinking about the fact that they made Freddy Krueger a pedophile that just seemed so out of step with what most slasher movies of this specific kind uh, mm-hmm. do. Like, it's mm-hmm. so focused on the teens. And it's like, obviously, he's killing teens in this movie. Um, it's not like he's killing children. I don't think the ratings world could handle a slasher movie with yeah. babies. But, that um, would have been weird at the time. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, well, why Why was this? Why was this? Um, and I'd been... Uh, there's a podcast or two. I think the main one, uh, the name is eluding me, but it recaps the case of Jacob Wetterling, which is a little closer to my and Aaron's age demographic. Uh, Cause I think that is about a little boy that went missing in the early nineties. Um, and his mm-hmm. for decades until I think like maybe a year or two ago, uh, they finally figured out where he was buried and who did it. Um, they got a confession and blah, blah, blah. But it was another one of those things that like really fueled the paranoia that parents had all about like, stranger danger i my family and i had a family password like we had to have that conversation at the kitchen table with like if a stranger comes up to you and says that i sent you that if they don't say the password don't you go with them and like the van with the guy promising candy and puppies like don't get in there like none of those things are like they're they're not real like I mean, they are to an, to an extent, but it's like the statistics say the most likely person to kidnap a child is someone they know, specifically right. usually a parent or other family member. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I wonder if this is feeding into that. And then I just thought it was a really fascinating coincidence that the same year that this movie came out is the year that they launched the Milk Carton Project where it's the faces on the milk carton, the little kids on the side, which I think they, I can't remember when they must have stopped doing it, but it's enough a part of like our cultural, like awareness, like milk carton kids. Um, people still know exactly what that means. And then when I thought the portrayal ended up leading um, me to, which is that I think something else that's, uh, you can pull out of this, that's you can't really pull out of the other other slashers that I think maybe is why like these levels or help what help keep nightmare on Elm street is part of the horror canon and not just something that we think of as like, you know, Oh yeah, it existed. It's a joke, but whatever. Um, it still has this Mm -hmm. very high place is that even though I don't, I honestly don't think Wes Craven intended to do this. He ended up creating this movie that speaks to the parents fears and not the kids. And it's not the parents' fears in this way where you're like, oh, these horror movies are conservative because they're all, if you have sex, you die. Um, Uh But in that, rather than being scared that your kids are going to have sex or that 
they're going to grow up way too fast. It's that something you can't stop is going to take them from you. And there's not going to be anything that you can do about it. Right. That's exactly like how that fear worked. You like, you thought that some stranger with a truck could just swing by on your kid's way to school and scoop them up. And there's no way for you to be able to predict that. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Like, and so I just think that that's ends up being really fascinating, especially cause like, uh, if you want to try and tie it back this way, which I did in my piece, uh, the, these are all the children of the people that murdered Freddie. And so in a sense, he's still going after kids. He wants the kids. It's mm-hmm. not about random teenagers. It's about these specific, you know, this specific town's teens. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the parents. Cause I, I feel like they're really interesting characters and they uh, so putting, yeah, putting, <laughs> putting, um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street against the other big two franchise horror mil- films of the time, uh, Halloween and Friday the 13th. Um, in those movies, I mean, adults were more or less uh, absent. Um, of course, in Friday the 13th, the only adult really in the movie is, is spoilers, the, the person killing everybody. And that was oh, his mother. Man. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and then in Halloween, you do see, well, obviously you have Sam Loomis, um, who was an adult, but he wasn't a parent. Um, the parents of the kids, I think you, you saw a few of them, but... The, really their job was to kind of get out of the way and let mm-hmm. the monster, you know, go after these kids. So it's interesting to see how integral, especially Nancy's parents, yeah. I, they might be really the only parents. I, I guess you see uh, Glenn's parents too, but actually kind of a funny scene where Nancy calls over to Glenn's right before he dies and, his parents are like, go away, stop calling. That's a pretty funny scene, actually. Um, but uh, Nancy's mother, I think, is uh, an interesting character because I, I feel like you never know exactly how you're supposed to feel about her. Um, and part of that's in the performance. I think they kind of keep her mysterious also in the script. Um, and then once once she reveals that she was a part of this mob that, that burned Freddie alive. Um, it's still even like you kind of blame her almost. I mean, um, for what's happening now, uh, even though like maybe she did the right, I mean, killing people isn't the right thing, but she was obviously doing it for, a, you know, something of a noble cause, mm-hmm. um, you know, justice and vengeance and all that. Like there are many movies about heroes killing, you know, people that got off for doing something. So, um, and then, yeah, in that performance, she's so kind of mysterious. Like she, sometimes she almost seems villainous, um, even when she's really not. Uh, what did you think of, of that character? I, uh, I definitely agree with that. I had moments, I think it's when you, because uh, it takes a while for you to see this. I think the movie is more than halfway over before you see uh, that her mom is clearly an alcoholic of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so I remember seeing that and being like, oh, wait, is she a shitty mom? I thought yeah. she was a good mom. Like, <laughs> I was like, not 100%. 
Uh, like exactly like you said, you know, I wasn't sure how I was supposed to take her. And so I think that's also kind of interesting that obviously the parents here that you do see are fail pretty spectacularly, but they are also get a little bit more characterization than I think other parents mm-hmm. in, the, in movies do. Even if like, you're like, oh, their absence is why, no, nobody was here to protect these kids. So they died. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's not really like a personality. Whereas like, we're like yeah. oh, like there's this divorce, like there's the like oh he's like he's trying to do his job here and she's like doing the best she can is like you know with right. her, you know, her I think the, and the her sort of... to protect and like her denial and like you get all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh that's an awful lot more information that I'm used to receiving about parents in any movie like this yeah like uh, there's that that balance between them uh obviously wanting to protect their kids uh i mean they killed a man to protect their kids um but then just being just totally um out of their element yeah they can't do anything about this uh and they can't understand it because it's not an understandable thing that's happening um, so yeah, I think there's uh, there's some really interesting uh, stuff going on there, uh, and then we have uh, this group of kids. Um, I have something I want to call out before I forget go ahead. about it. Yeah, I the other thing that I liked because it fits it fits my kind of thesis about this whole like paranoia around missing children thing that uh, really struck me, especially because it's the '80s when I feel like movies. Um, were pretty terrible about it. I mean, they're still really terrible about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, Nancy looks like she's in high school. Like she has a baby face and she right. looks like a teen. Like a, she looks like a, you'd call her a Yeah, child. I think As Heather Langenkamp like, was 20 at the time. Yeah, which yeah. even so, there are some 20-year-olds that just like, because of, you know, looks or like how they're put on the screen, they look sure. older. Like, yeah. you know, like, no fucking 16-year-old has ever looked like that. Nice <laughs> right. uh, whereas, no, she totally passes for 16, 17 years old. Like, no question at all. Mm-hmm. Which actually sets her apart a little bit from some of the other cast members. Because I think the problem is that, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, no offense to her, like, I mean, she looks like her age in Halloween. She looks like she's in college. She looks like a 20-year-old. Yeah. Um, she doesn't look like she's 16. And so I think that there's something that makes this a little bit more effective with the fact that Nancy actually does have, you know, she doesn't look like a full grown adult. So when you see her like getting her gray streak in her hair and jacked up mm. on caffeine, like I'm going to fucking kill this guy. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't know. There's like something that draws you to, or you're rooting for her a little harder and the danger feels a little more real, I guess. Yeah. And I, I think Johnny Depp too, like, I think he comes off as very young in this, but I think maybe only because we're, we've been so used to seeing Johnny Depp on screen the 30 years since right. um, that, uh, you know, that by contrast, he, he looks like he could be, um, and he was young, obviously. It was his first screen role mm-hmm. um, as uh, Nancy's boyfriend who gets eaten by his bed, which is another amazing scene that has sort of lived on in cultural consciousness um, from this film. Uh, yeah, I guess just uh, uh, going off on that, I think that most, I mean, most horror movies, especially horror movies like slasher films that are made now, and maybe it's just because I've gotten older, but one of the things that I just can't stand about 
horror films made like this today is that the characters are so unlikable, sometimes purposefully by like the script, like they're supposed, you know, they're, they're written like stupid teenagers or whatever. Um, or, you know, you want people want the screenwriters, the director, whatever, want you to like the characters. I just can't connect with them. Um, which, or the sort of purpose of the character is just, we want to see these people get killed, you know? Can you name a modern example where you were like, I think I'm supposed to like this person, but oh my God, they suck. Um, it isn't exactly that, but, um, a very recent movie, uh, Happy Death Day, which is maybe still in theaters now. Did you see Happy Death Day? I did not. Okay. So part of that movie is that, you know, it's, everybody knows it's like a groundhog day for this college, uh, girl who, who gets killed every night and then wakes up and has to kind of figure out who killed her. Um, the, the, the people in this movie are so unlikable, uh, that I think, and I think you're supposed to kind of think that they're cool. Um, and part of it is that the lead character, like by the end, she has to have that realization that she needs to be a better person. And there's all that too. So I think some of that is intentional. Um, but I think, um, I, I'm not a big aficionado of the Friday the 13th series, but from what I've seen and kind of what I know, um, here's another good example, the Saw series. So the Saw films, I think a lot of times those films now that are like kill movie, like, uh, like, um, uh, you know, kill death movies that basically their purpose is for you to watch like people to grossest, get killed. Yeah. You just watch yeah. somebody die in the grossest toy you've ever seen. So, I mean, those movies aren't going to be interested in making you like the characters um, because that would be totally fucked up <laughs> to like have some attachment to a character and then see them get killed. Uh, and like, you're supposed to root for them to get killed. So I, I think that one of the things I really like about this film is the, well, there's, there's four primary teenagers in it. Um, I think they're all pretty well written. I think they all have, um, you know, I think they're all interesting and likable. And I think you do root for them. Um, at least I do. Uh, even though Freddie kind of became the star of the series, I think Nancy is like, she's such a, she's such a great heroine. I mean, you, you've kind of touched on it already. Um, but there's like sequences in this film where she's basically like, home alone proofing her house, like putting up all these like crazy um, booby traps to, to catch Freddy. Uh, like when you see her do that, like obviously like we've seen a million movies do that. So it always comes off as a little bit silly, but like watching her do that, like, I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's, uh, you know, building her into a hero. And uh, I think uh, with a worse character at the center of the movie, um, I don't think the franchise would have really taken off, even though Freddy was really what people kind of latched onto. Yeah, I could see that. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Hmm, I don't think I'm going to watch any more of these movies. I'm <laughs> saying that. 
Um, well, I, I still have a desire to watch Friday the 13th, even though multiple people are like, dude, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a very archetypal movie from what I remember. I mean, it's sort of a structure and a plot that's been done a million times by now that, and I mean, I, you know, with that may, maybe makes it less interesting to watch now, but it was, I mean, it was the thing that pretty much invented all of those tropes. So like more power to it, you know, um, I, I'll briefly say a few things about some of the later films in the series. Um, since, uh, I'm not going to try to like, uh, convince you to watch any of them, but I think there's there's a few interesting tidbits. So uh, the sequel, um, Friday's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which I think is generally considered one of the worst films in the series, um, partially because it does things, and well, it, it breaks some of the rules in, in kind of egregious ways. Um, and it's not particularly scary or funny, but I found uh, there's a lot of really interesting subtext in it. Um, and that, uh, the main, so the main character is a man. Well, he's, he's a young man, which is atypical for slash films. Usually they, the main hero is, is female. Um, and partially because of that, and then just partially because of how the character is written, um, it, the film has kind of become known as uh, a film about, uh, the struggles of being uh, closeted, mm. which is which is interesting. There's there's some really interesting subtext going throughout uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Two, Freddy's Revenge. That it, maybe it's not a great movie, but it's it kind of exemplifies the best of the series, and that in the sequels that are really willing to kind of take chances and be interesting and do something interesting as opposed to the worst films in the series, which kind of just became kind of jokey killing machines. But uh, number three, uh, Dream Warriors is kind of considered most people's second favorite. Uh, and it is really good. It's got Patricia Arquette as the lead woman. Um, and it's it's set in like a mental health facility for uh, young people, and uh, they have this sort of ability to pull each other into their dreams. So it kind of uh, raises the stakes a little bit in that way, and uh, again has some really uh, fun, interesting characters in it uh and the ensemble working together is is really great uh the only other film in the in the franchise that i'll mention is um the the final sort of official uh nightmare film which is when west craven came back to make new nightmare have you seen new nightmare you know do you know anything about it i sure do not okay okay if you were going to watch any other Nightmare movie um, and you don't have to watch any of the other sequels to watch this one because it kind of retcons a lot of stuff. And because it's Wes Craven coming back, he really only cares about the first movie anyway. Right. Um, so he made this two years before Scream and it kind of feels like a test run in his interest in meta commentaries and horror films. Um, it stars Howard Langenkamp back uh, not as Nancy, but as Heather Langenkamp, playing herself 
And uh, the movie is about um, 10 years after the original film, she now has a husband and a young son, and she begins having uh, nightmares, uh, maybe involving Freddy. Like, she's getting prank phone calls, people pretending to be Freddy. Uh, there's also, she's in, in Hollywood, obviously, and, and there's... Um, all of these uh, earthquakes that are happening too, that are kind of raising her own tensions. Uh, and we find out um, a little bit later on that. No spoilers. Cause now you're making me want to watch it. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll just say, I'll just say, I'll, I won't say anything specific then, but I'll, I'll say that um, you find out that it's, it's really about Wes Craven is writing a new script for a new Nightmare on Elm Street film. And that in some way is kind of bringing this supernatural force back around. Now, the approach to Freddy in this film is much different. Uh, if you uh, didn't really care for the, the jokey Freddy, then uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare is uh, maybe a little bit more something you're looking for. He's, he's basically in Nightmare on Elm Street like a like a demon, basically. He's not, I mean, there, there, he has some moments where he kind of uh, makes fun uh, of things, but he's mostly just like down to like killing and like being a terrible monster, uh, which is a little bit different. And uh, I'll also say that uh, there are some interesting visual cues that the film takes from the original one. Uh, a few of the deaths are sort of revamped or, um, remarked on in interesting ways that uh is kind of a, a an interesting parry and and i think it's my second favorite of the series i mean again like i said it it's it totally takes risks with the characters with the franchise that like no big hollywood franchises like really do that often um and it's a really it's a, it's a pretty interesting film so uh yeah it's also uh similar to the babadook it is very much about a woman's sort of insanity in trying to raise a child and how and how uh, a special needs kid like makes it a terrible job to be a mother and how sort of external factors also um, impact that person being a mother. So um, the Babadook would actually be a really good companion to it as well. So you might you might want to check that one out. It's it's good. I'll put it on my list for next Halloween. <laughs> and there you go. All right. With that, uh, I think we can wrap it up here then. Uh, we want to uh, thank Hemi, the Hemingbirds for our theme song, uh, Half a Second, from their album, Half a Second. Check them out on the internets. Uh, we have a pretty rocking theme song, if I say so myself. Hey. And, yeah, so uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to have uh, – some more interesting films to chat about. I think our next podcast will probably maybe be on Malcolm X. It's its 25th anniversary. I think Sarah and I both have never seen it. I have not. So that's going to be fun. And uh, yeah, so uh, with that, uh, we will uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Uh, iTunes, all that. Uh, happy Halloween. Ooh. John still hasn't seen Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>